Part thirteen of Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M.B. Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Numa, Part Three. After Numa had thus established and regulated the priestly orders, he built, near the temple of Vesta, the so-called Regia, or royal house. Here he passed most of his time, performing sacred functions, or teaching the priests, or engaged in the quiet contemplation of divine things. He also had another house on the Quirinal Hill, the site of which is still pointed out. At all public and solemn processions of the priests, heralds were sent on before through the city, bidding the people make holiday, and putting a stop to all labor. For, just as it is said that the Pythagoreans do not allow men to worship and pray to their gods cursorily and by the way, but would have them go from their homes directly to this office, with their minds prepared for it, so Numa thought that his citizens ought neither to hear nor see any divine service while they were occupied with other matters and therefore unable to pay attention. They should rather be free from all distractions, and devote their thoughts to the religious ceremony as a matter of the highest importance. They should also rid their streets of noise and clatter and clamor, and all such accompaniments of menial and manual labor, and clear them for the sacred ceremonies. And the Romans still preserve some traces of this earlier feeling. When a magistrate is busy taking auspices or sacrificing, the people cry, Hoc age, which means, mind this, and helps to make the bystanders attentive and orderly. Many of his other precepts also resembled those of the Pythagoreans. For instance, the Pythagoreans said, Don't use a quart measure as a seat. Don't poke the fire with a sword. When you set out for foreign parts, don't turn back. And, To the celestial gods, sacrifice an odd number, but an even number to the terrestrial and the meaning of all these precepts they would keep hidden from the vulgar. So in some of Numa's rules the meaning is hidden, as, for instance, don't offer to the gods wine from unpruned vines, don't make a sacrifice without meal, turn round as you worship, and sit down after worship. The first two rules would seem to teach that the subjection of the earth is a part of religion, and the worshippers turning round is said to be an imitation of the rotary motion of the universe. But I would rather think that the worshipper who enters a temple, since temples face the east and the sun, has his back towards the sunrise, and therefore turns himself half round in that direction, and then wheels fully round to face the god of the temple, thus making a complete circle, and linking the fulfillment of his prayer with both deities unless, indeed, this change of posture, like the Egyptian wheels, 
darkly hints and teaches that there is no stability in human affairs but that we must accept contentedly whatever twists and turns our lives may receive from the deity and as for the sitting down after worship we are told that it is an augury of the acceptance of the worshipper's prayers and the duration of his blessings we are also told that as different acts are separated by an interval of rest so the worshipper having completed one act sits down in the presence of the gods in order that he may begin another with their blessing but this too can be brought into agreement with what was said above the lawgiver is trying to accustom us not to make our petitions to the deity when we are busied with other matters and in a hurry as it were but when we have time and are at leisure by such training and schooling in religious matters the city became so tractable and stood in such awe of numa's power that they accepted his stories though fabulously strange and thought nothing incredible or impossible which he wished them to believe or do at any rate the story goes that he once invited a large number of the citizens to his table and set before them mean dishes and a very simple repast but just as they began to eat he surprised them by saying that the goddess with whom he consorted was come to visit him and lo on a sudden the room was full of costly beakers and the tables were laden with all sorts of meats and abundant furniture but nothing can be so strange as what is told about his conversation with jupiter when the aventine hill so runs the tale was not yet a part of the city nor even inhabited but abounded in springs and shady dells two demigods picus and faunus made it their haunt in other ways these divinities might be likened to satyrs or pans but they are said to have used powerful drugs and practised clever incantations and to have traversed italy playing the same tricks as the so-called Aedean dactyli of the greeks these demigods numa is said to have caught by mixing wine and honey with the water of the spring from which they were wont to drink when captured they dropped their own forms and assumed many different shapes presenting hideous and dreadful appearances but when they perceived that they were fast caught and could not escape they foretold to numa many things that would come to pass and taught him besides the charm against thunder and lightning which is still practised with onions hair and sprats some however say that it was not the imps themselves who imparted the charm but that they called jupiter down from the heaven by their magic and that this deity angrily told numa that he must charm thunder and lightning with heads of onions asked numa filling out the phrase of men said jupiter thereupon numa trying once more to avert the horror of the prescription asked with hair nay answered jupiter with living sprats added numa as he had been taught by Agiria to say then the god returned to heaven in a gracious mood hylios as the greeks say and the place was called elysium from this circumstance and that is the way the charm was perfected these stories fabulous and ridiculous as they are show us the attitude which the men of that time from force of custom took towards the gods and numa himself as they say had such implicit confidence in the gods 
that once, when a message was brought to him that enemies were coming up against the city, he smiled and said, But I am sacrificing. He was also the first, they say, to build temples to faith and terminus, and he taught the Romans their most solemn oath by faith, which they still continue to use. Terminus signifies boundary, and to this god they made public and private sacrifices where their fields are set off by boundaries, of living victims nowadays, but anciently the sacrifice was a bloodless one, since Numa reasoned that the god of boundaries was a guardian of peace and a witness of just dealing, and should therefore be clear from slaughter. And it is quite apparent that it was this king who set bounds to the territory of the city, for Romulus was unwilling to acknowledge, by measuring off his own, how much he had taken away from others. He knew that a boundary, if observed, fetters lawless power, and if not observed, convicts of injustice. And indeed the city's territory was not extensive at first, but Romulus acquired most of it later with the spear. All this was distributed by Numa among the indigent citizens. He wished to remove the destitution which drives men to wrongdoing, and to turn the people to agriculture, that they might be subdued and softened along with the soil they tilled. For there is no occupation which produces so keen and quick a relish for peace as that of a farmer's life, where so much of the warrior's daring as prompts a man to fight for his own is always preserved, while the warrior's license to indulge in rapacity and injustice is extirpated. Numa, therefore, administering agriculture to his citizens as a sort of peace potion, and well pleased with the art as fostering character rather than wealth, divided the city's territory into districts, to which he gave the name of Pagi, and in each of them he set overseers and patrols. But sometimes he would inspect them in person, and judging of the characters of the citizens from the condition of their farms, would advance some to positions of honor and trust, while others who were indolent and careless he would chide and reproach, and so try to make them sensible. But of all his measures, the one most admired was his distribution of the people into groups according to their trades or arts. For the city was supposed to consist of two tribes, as has been said, although it had no consistency, but was rather divided into two tribes, and utterly refused to become united or to blot out its diversities and differences. On the contrary, it was filled with ceaseless collisions and contentions between its component parts. Numa, therefore, aware that hard substances which will not readily mingle may be crushed and pulverized, and then more easily mix and mingle with each other owing to the smallness of their particles, determined to divide the entire body of the people into a greater number of divisions, and so, by merging it in other distinctions, to obliterate the original and great distinction, which would be lost among the lesser ones. He distributed them, accordingly, by arts and trades, into musicians, goldsmiths, carpenters, dyers, leather-workers, couriers, braziers, and potters. The remaining trades he grouped together, and made one body out of all who belonged to them. He also appointed social gatherings and public assemblies and rites of worship befitting each body. And thus, at last, 
he banished from the city the practice of speaking and thinking of some citizens as sabines and of others as romans or of some as subjects of tatius and others of romulus so that his division resulted in a harmonious blending of them all together praise is also given to that measure of his whereby the law permitting fathers to sell their sons was amended he made an exception of married sons provided they had married with the consent and approval of their fathers for he thought it a hard thing that a woman who had married a man whom she thought free should find herself living with a slave he applied himself also to the adjustment of the calendar not with exactness and yet not altogether without careful observation for during the reign of romulus they had been irrational and irregular in their fixing of the months reckoning some at less than twenty days some at thirty-five and some at more and they had no idea of the inequality in the annual motions of the sun and moon but held to this principle only that the year should consist of three hundred and sixty days but numa estimating the extent of the inequality at eleven days since the lunar year had three hundred and fifty-four days but the solar year three hundred and sixty-five doubled these eleven days and every other year inserted after the month of february the intercalary month called mercadinus by the romans which consisted of twenty-two days this correction of the inequality which he made was destined to require other and greater corrections in the future he also changed the order of the months march which had been first he made the third month and january which had been the eleventh under romulus he made the first month february which had been twelfth and last thus became the second month as now but there are many who say that these months of january and february were added to the calendar by numa and that at the outset the romans had only ten months in their year as some barbarians have three and as among the greeks the arcadians have four and the acarnanians six the egyptian year had at first only a single month in it afterwards four as we are told and therefore though they inhabit a very recent country they have the credit of being a very ancient people and load their genealogies with a prodigious number of years since they really count their months as so many years that the romans had at first only ten months in their year and not twelve is proved by the name of their last month for they still call it december or the tenth month and that march used to be their first month is proved by the sequence of months after it for the fifth month after it used to be called quintilis the sixth sextilis and so on with the rest therefore when they placed january and february before march they were guilty of naming the above-mentioned month quintilis or fifth but counting it seventh and besides it was reasonable that march which is consecrate to mars should be put in the first place by romulus and april in the second place since this month is named after aphrodite in it the in it they sacrifice to the goddess and on its first day the women bathe with myrtle garlands on their heads some however say that april with its smooth p cannot be derived from aphrodite with its rough ph but that this month of high springtime is called april 
because it opens and discloses the buds and shoots in vegetation, this being the meaning of the word apirio. The next month in order is called May from Maya, the mother of Mercury, to whom it is sacred, and June is so named from Juno. There are some, however, who say that these months get their name from an age, older and younger, for majores is their name for the elder, juniores for the younger men. Each of the remaining months they named from its arithmetical position in the list, the fifth quintilis, the sixth sextilis, and so on. September, October, November, and December. Afterwards the fifth month was named Julius, from Julius Caesar, the conqueror of Pompey, and the sixth month Augustus, from the second Caesar, who was given that title. The seventh and eighth months bore for a short time the names Germanicus and Domitianus, which the emperor Domitian gave them. But when he was slain, they resumed their old titles of September and October. Only the last two months, November and December, preserved the names derived from their position in the list, just as they were at the outset. Of the months which were added or transposed by Numa, February must have something to do with purification, for this is the nearest to the meaning of the word, and in this month they make offerings to the dead, and celebrate the festival of the Lupercalia, which, in most of its features, resembles a purification. The first month, January, is so named from Janus, and I think that March, which is named from Mars, was moved by Numa from its place at the head of the months, because he wished in every case that martial influences should yield precedence to civil and political. For this Janus, in remote antiquity, whether he was a demigod or a king, was a patron of civil and social order, and is said to have lifted human life out of its bestial and savage state. For this reason he is represented with two faces, implying that he brought men's lives out of one sort and condition into another. He also has a temple at Rome with double doors which they call the gates of war, for the temple always stands open in time of war, but is closed when peace has come. The latter was a difficult matter, and it rarely happened, since the realm was always engaged in some war, as its increasing size brought it into collision with the barbarous nations which encompassed it round about. But in the time of Augustus Caesar it was closed, after he had overthrown Anton, and before that, when Marcus Antilius and Titus Manlius were consuls, it was closed a short time. Then war broke out again at once, and it was opened. During the reign of Numa, however, it was not seen open for a single day, but remained shut for the space of forty-three years together, so complete and universal was the cessation of war. For not only was the Roman people softened and charmed by the righteousness and mildness of their king, but also the cities round about, as if some cooling breeze or salubrious wind were wafted upon them from Rome, began to experience a change of temper, and all of them were filled with longing desire to have good government, to be at peace, to till the earth, to rear their children in quiet, and to worship the gods. 
festivals and feasts, hospitalities and friendly converse between people who visited one another promiscuously and without fear, these prevailed throughout Italy, while honor and justice flowed into all hearts from the wisdom of Numa as from a fountain, and the calm serenity of his spirit diffused itself abroad. Thus even the hyperboles of the poets fall short of picturing the state of man in those days. And on the iron-bound shield-handles lie the tawny spider's webs, and rust now subdues the sharp-pointed spears and two-edged swords. No longer is the blast of brazen trumpets heard, nor are the eyelids robbed of delicious sleep for there is no record either of war or faction or political revolution while Numa was king. Nay more, no hatred or jealousy was felt towards his person, nor did ambition lead men to plot and conspire against his throne. On the contrary, either fear of the gods who seemed to have him in their especial care, or reverence for his virtue, or a marvellous felicity, which in his days kept life free from the taint of every vice and pure, made him a manifest illustration and confirmation of the saying which Plato, many generations later, ventured to utter regarding government, namely, that human ills would only then cease and disappear when, by some divine felicity, the power of a king should be united in one person with the insight of a philosopher, thereby establishing virtue in control and mastery over vice. Blessed, indeed, is such a wise man. In himself, and blessed, too, are those who hear the words of wisdom issuing from his lips. For possibly there is no need of any compulsion or menace in dealing with the multitude. But when they see with their own eyes a conspicuous and shining example of virtue in the life of their ruler, they will of their own accord walk in wisdom's ways, and unite with him in conforming themselves to a blameless and blessed life of friendship and mutual concord, attended by righteousness and temperance. Such a life is the noblest end of all government, and he is most a king who can inculcate such a life and such a disposition in his subjects. This, then, as it appears, Numa was preeminent in discerning. As regards his marriages and offspring, histories are at variance. Some say that he had no other wife than Tatia, and no other child than one daughter, Pompilia. Others ascribe to him four sons besides, Pompon, Pinus, Calpus, and Mamercus, each one of whom was the founder of an honorable family. From Pompon, the Pomponii are descended, from Pinus, the Pinerii, from Calpus, the Calpurnii, and from Mamercus, the Mamercii, who for this reason also had the surname of Reges, or kings. But there is a third class of writers who accuse the former of paying court to these great families by forging for them lines of descent from Numa, and they say that Pompilia was not the daughter of Tatia, but of Lucretia, another wife whom Numa married after he became king. However, all are agreed that Pompilia was married to Marcius. Now this Marcius was a son of the Marcius who induced Numa to accept the throne. That Marcius accompanied Numa to Rome, and there was honored with membership in the Senate. 
After Numa's death, he competed for the throne with Hostilius, and being defeated, starved himself to death. But his son Marcius, the husband of Pompilia, remained at Rome, and begat Ancus Marcius, who succeeded Tullus Hostilius in the kingdom. This Ancus Marcius is said to have been only five years old when Numa died, not a speedy nor a sudden death, but wasting away gradually from old age and a mild disorder, as Piso writes. He was something over eighty years old when he died. His obsequies were as much to be envied as his life. The peoples which were in alliance and friendship with Rome assembled at the rites with public offerings and crowns. The senators carried his beer, the priests of the gods served as its escort, and the rest of the people, including women and children, followed with groans and lamentations, not as though they were attending the funeral of an aged king, but as though each one of them was burying some dearest relation, taken away in the flower of life. They did not burn his body, because, as it is said, he forbade it, but they made two stone coffins, and buried them under the geniculum. One of these held his body, and the other the sacred books which he had written out with his own hand, as the Greek lawgivers their tablets. But since, while he was still living, he had taught the priests the written contents of the books, and had inculcated in their hearts the scope and meaning of them all, he commanded that they should be buried with his body, convinced that such mysteries ought not to be entrusted to the care of lifeless documents. This is the reason, we are told, why the Pythagoreans also do not entrust their precepts to writing, but implant the memory and practice of them in living disciples worthy to receive them. And when their treatment of the abstruse and mysterious processes of geometry have been divulged to a certain unworthy person, they said the gods threatened to punish such lawlessness and impiety with some signal and widespread calamity. Therefore we may well be indulgent with those who are eager to prove, on the basis of so many resemblances between them, that Numa was acquainted with Pythagoras. Antius, however, writes that it was twelve pontifical books, and twelve others of Greek philosophy, which were placed in the coffin and about four hundred years afterwards, when Publius Cornelius and Marcus Bibius were consuls, heavy rains fell, and the torrent of water tore away the earth and dislodged the coffins. When their lids had fallen off, one coffin was seen to be entirely empty, without any trace whatever of the body, but in the other the writings were found. These Petilius, who was then praetor, is said to have read, and then brought to the Senate, declaring that, in his opinion, it was not lawful or proper that the writings should be published abroad. The books were therefore carried to the Comitium and burned. It is true, indeed, of all just and good men, that they are praised more after they have left the world than before, since envy does not long survive them, and some even see it die before them. But in Numa's case the misfortunes of all the kings who followed him made his fame shine all the brighter. For of the five who came after him, 
the last was dethroned and grew old in exile, and of the other four not one died a natural death. Three of them were conspired against and slain, and Tullus Hostilius, who reigned next after Numa and who mocked and derided most of his virtues, and above all his devotion to religion, declaring that it made men idle and effeminate, turned the minds of the citizens to war. He himself, however, did not abide by his presumptuous folly, but was converted by a grievous and complicated disease, and gave himself over to a superstition which was far removed from the piety of Numa. His subjects, too, were even more affected with superstition, as we are told, when he died by a stroke of lightning. End of Numa, Part 3